Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Would you take up your Bibles? And turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. We're continuing our series through this book. 2 Samuel chapter 21. We'll be reading the whole chapter. It's on page 273. Or if you've got one of the blue larger print Bibles, 321, page 321. Samuel 21. Let's listen to God's perfect words to us. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. He said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so we might hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Harmoni, and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the, son, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehalathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together, they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. And when David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged 
And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. There was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jar Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like the weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This is God's words to us. Now, just as we begin to get into this strange, perhaps dark passage. Um, just have a think though, have you, have you ever started something only to find that it fell apart and just didn't last perhaps? I don't know, you're, you think you're quite good at DIY. Uh, I don't know, you build a bookshelf or something and then as you began to place the books, you hear the, the quiet crack as the nail splinters the wood and then the panic as the whole thing begins to fall onto your telly beneath. It's, it's, it's gutting, isn't it, to start something to put effort into it and find it wrecked and ruined. And have you ever wondered, as you've come to church one Sunday, or you've been sitting at home praying, you know, God, is, is this actually the real deal? Are you going to finish what you started? Will this whole thing actually last? I don't know, perhaps you've seen people giving in. Or, or gossip and backbiting, tearing relationships apart, um, apart. Um, or, or faced in person or on, or on social media, people kind of bad-mouthing the church. And you, you just wonder if the cracks are beginning, beginning to appear and the whole thing's going to come tumbling down. Well, here in 2 Samuel, God has been getting us to look actually at the stability of what he's built. Last week, we saw at the end of the story, God was keeping his kingdom going, despite uh, Shimei, if you remember, and Joab's different rebellions. Yes, it was weak, but God was at its core. And here in chapter 21, it seems as if God is getting us to consider something similar, but from a different angle. He's getting us to see what it takes, what it takes to keep everything together, to actually keep it secure. Now, these last four chapters... 21 to 24 that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. They work together. They're kind of a, a separate unit. They, they don't fit the chronology of the rest of the book. As you can see just from verse 1, now there was a famine in the days of David. We're not told when. It's at some point during his reign. 
And the pattern of these four chapters actually work a little bit like a pyramid. Uh, the technical word for it is, is, is a chiasm. The outer bits are similar. So chapter 21 is all about Saul's sin and what God does about it. And then chapter four, 24, when we get to it, is about David's sin. And then the next step in is about David's warriors and battles. That's the end of chapter 21 that we've just read and chapter 23. And then the middle of the pyramid uh, that we'll get to next week uh, and the week after is, is chapter 22, the beginning of 23. It's the song of David and his last words. So it kind of works in this pyramid. And we, uh, Today we're going to take kind of the first steps in, on, onto the pyramids, uh, but from one side. We're going to look at this dark it is dark, isn't it? And strange story of the Gibeonites. And then more briefly, we'll delve into the battles with the giants. And as we do, we're going to see how serious the problems are actually facing God's people. But also how wonderfully God deals with them. So the first problem, let's look at the first problem and it's this. It's the reality of God's wrath. It's the reality of God's wrath. Yet again... Here in 2 Samuel, we meet a passage that, that brings us closer to the darker parts of life than perhaps we'd have wanted. And it starts with a seemingly agricultural problem. Verse, verse 1, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. Now hidden in these words is, is deep human suffering. In a country like Israel, a lack of crops for three years means there'll be many people starving. Now, famine was probably due to drought in those days. Food prices might have rocketed. Uh, you know, farmers and families were, were malnourished, perhaps even dying. Many will have had to have moved to find water. But as often we find in our world, and especially in a, in a really clear way in the Old Testament when God explains, this isn't random. Often for Israel, the land failed when the people failed. It's like that... Um, uh, later on, when Ahab turns all the, the people to worship Baal and one kings that some of us, uh, some of us have seen in, in house groups, and what was there? There was famine, famine as punishment from God. And here it's no different. Because verse 1 again, David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there's blood guilt. That's the reason for this famine. There's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. This famine, it's not just some random thing going on. It is a response from God. It is his anger. It's his wrath at something that has happened in Israel. Now you might think, well, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? A famine? Why would God do such a thing? Well, when we get the backstory, what we actually see is God's righteousness in his wrath. Because blood has been poured out on this land unjustly. And so God has cursed it. And to get the, the back story, we've got to go back to Joshua because probably the word Gibeonites may not mean much to us, but we've got to go back to Joshua because in the book of Joshua, God's people, if you know the story, they they're entered the land of Canaan and they're systematically ridding the land of enemies. Tribe after tribe were being resoundly beaten. And the Gibeonites, they were next on the list. However, in Joshua uh, chapter 9, they, they, they played a bit of a trick. They pretended to have come from miles away uh, to make peace uh, with Joshua. They changed their clothes. They, they, they had worn uh, kind of water skins. And, and Joshua, he, he fell, with, fell for it. They, they made a covenant at, uh, with the Gibeonites and agreed that God's people would let them live. 
Now, it's important we realize at this point that a covenant is a, it's a binding contract. You, you agree to a covenant and you're bound to it. And the consequences for breaking it can be very serious. Some, some covenants were done by, by cutting animals in half and leaving a gap between the halves. And then both parties of the covenant would walk between them. In other words, saying, if I break this covenant, the same is going to happen to me, like these animals. So the leaders of Israel at that time, when they they found out that these Gibeonites were actually people who lived really close by, and they were obviously annoyed by that, but they refused to then kill the Gibeonites. They said this in Joshua, This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. They understood, break the covenant and wrath would come upon them. God will uphold this agreement. But then we get to 2 Samuel. And somehow, Saul has, in the past, completely disregarded the covenant. Now, we're not told how. It's not an event that we get in uh, 1 Samuel, but... But Saul clearly went on a rampage, killing many of the Gibeonites. And now we're beginning to see God's justice. Because imagine the scene. Gibeonites, they're just living at peace with their neighbors. They're trusting this covenant between them. They're farming, trading, raising their children. And then Saul, with his soldiers, march over the horizon weapons in hand, slashing and pillaging as they saw fit, the dead strewn on the floor, blood soaking into the dusty soil. It's a war crime, that's what we'd call it nowadays, isn't it? It's, it's happened again and again over the centuries, soldiers killing innocent civilians. Saul had broken the covenant and slaughtered those who were meant to be protected. Promises had been made and he'd completely ignored them. Now, Saul wasn't the first to break this kind of promise or treaty. He certainly wasn't the last. We can think of many through history, can't we? You know, just in the Second World War, Hitler broke the Treaty of Versailles and he, he rearmed, he moved troops around before war. It's that kind of event that's gone on, national significance, and Saul's doing similar. He's cutting down innocent people under the pretense of their safety. And the Lord had seen, he had seen the injustice. He'd heard the cries of those cut down, and so the land wept. In Numbers 35, it says this, Blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. The land was polluted by spilt blood. It's like saying the nation is stained with the guilt of Saul. Even though Saul was dead, a great injustice had been done and nothing had been done about it. You know, it's it's like the British completely ignoring the fact that we've, you know, we've been complicit in in slavery or or, or famine in India leading to, to thousands if not millions of deaths. Our land, it's polluted by spilt blood. Our land here isn't quite under the same covenant as Israel was, but for them... Just as the leaders in Joshua had known, to break this covenant brought God's wrath. God's wrath is real. Justice had to be done. And to begin to bring that justice, God had brought a famine on the land. Their suffering was a price for the injustice. Just as Gibeonites had died, so the people of Israel were now suffering 
God does not take uh, justice lightly. He does not ignore it. He doesn't ignore promises. He doesn't sweep wrongdoing under the carpet. He's not like us. He cares for it deeply. He cares when people are killed wrongly, like, like children being mown down in, in American schools or civilians being bombed in Ukraine and, and Russian towns. He cares when people break their words. From international treaties but to, to marriage vows, to promises made between friends, even though he established this kingdom of David, he cares for justice deeply, even if it brings this kingdom to its knees. Doesn't this challenge us? You know, this, this shakes us up from our kind of laissez-faire attitude with the truth. It wakes us up from being a bit loose with our words, not really taking our promises seriously. It challenges us as well as we watch the news and just turn another blind eye to the atrocities we see. But not only does God care, he acts. He punishes wrongdoing. He will bring justice when we fail to do so. The famine in verse 1, it's a hint of it. The death of these seven men who will come to points to it, that the, this death spilt, this blood spilt for the death of those innocent Gibeonites. However much we think this life is without consequences, we do need to know the reality of God's wrath. As the Apostle Paul put in the book of Acts, he said, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The reality of God's wrath, God's justice, it is this first big problem that his kingdom faces. We are a people mired in sin. And God will not let it pass. It's not just for particular sins of, of breaking our word, although it is for that. It is for our total rebellion that, against God himself. It's our sin and our, our consequences. That's what's going to shatter what we hope to build. You know, we know people time and time again try to build their own kingdoms. We see national leaders kind of crushing their enemies and building empires. We see it in major corporations kind of eating up smaller companies. We see it in our, in our own personal greed for more and more even at the expense of others. But God's wrath sits as a reality waiting us. It's like a giant sledgehammer poised above our castles made of sand. Even though we might die in our beds thinking we've got away from it. God does not forget. Not even death will prevent him from bringing justice. I think often we have a view of God that treats him a bit like a cuddly grandfather. He's nice and friendly, a bit soppy, someone we can just kind of snuggle up to. You hear people saying, oh, it's, it's all going to be all right in the end, I just know it. But that's not the Bible's view. God is spoken about as an all-consuming fire. For those who reject him, it really won't be all right in the end. It's the reality of God's wrath. Now, does that mean there's no hope? Is the church done for? Well, there's more, thankfully. Thankfully, there's more. Because yes, there's the reality of God's wrath, but there's also, secondly, the healing, the healing of God's atonement. The healing of God's atonement. There is a way towards restoration, and we're thankful, aren't we? But it is a torrid way, because this passage, first of all, brings us very close to death brings us very close to the death of these seven young men. Now, since uh, 
He knows what the problem is. David, he then asks the Gibeonites what would appease them. And since Saul is dead, they ask, verse 6, for seven of his sons to be given over and hung as punishment for what Saul did. And David agrees. Now, unlike Saul, David keeps his oath uh, to Mephibosheth. We assume the second Mephibosheth mentioned is a different one. But he keeps his oath to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, and spares him. But the other seven men are taken, given over to the Gibeonites and are hanged. It's a gruesome, deeply sad scene, isn't it? Seven men strung up for all to see, for us to see. And Rizpah, Rizpah, the mother of these two men, she brings us even closer to the horror. Because to, to stop them being eaten by animals, she sits there day and night, close to these decaying corpses, keeping off the birds and the beasts. It's an extraordinary moment of compassion of a mother. It's deeply moving. It's kind of information we we wish wasn't there because it's a horror, actually, to sit with Rizpah, isn't it? As these men lie dead for their sins, of the sins of their father or grandfather. Now David hears of this compassion he, and he's inspired, inspired by her to act rightly too. He makes sure Saul and Jonathan as well as these seven men are given a proper burial. Rather than lying out there for animals, he brings them to the land of Benjamin and there they are buried, rightly, honorably. And somehow, somehow all of this meets God's standard for justice. Verse 14 And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So it means the blood guilt has been atoned for. Now, atoned for, that means that justice has been done, that the pollution and guilt has been wiped away. And what's tricky about this passage is is working out what in particular atoned for the sin. Was it just the death of these seven men, fulfilling the covenant consequences, perhaps? Or was it just the compassion and mercy shown by Rizpah and David? Because it's after that that the, uh, God responds. Or was it, in fact, the whole thing? Was it all of it? And perhaps after, as we've seen throughout 2 Samuel, I wonder if it's all of it. It's this combination. It's this combination of justice and mercy meeting. It's crimes paid for and hearts changed because of it. But what we we do know, even if it's it's tricky to kind of pull apart in this passage, what we do know that in the end God is clearly appeased, isn't he? His wrath is averted, his justice is satisfied. And in the midst of it all, we, we need to see two things. Firstly, firstly God shows us that atonement, that dealing with his wrath is not some nice, clean event. Because Rizpah and her actions bring us close to the horrors of death as we sit with her dead sons. We know God uh, has a bigger and greater solution to his wrath than just this small moment in Israel. We know his son. We know his son, Jesus Christ, died for us. That is the true and final atonement made by God himself in flesh. And this passage just points us to the horrors of that. A man, scarred, bleeding, suffering, 
suffering physical and spiritual torment. Jesus dying on that cross for us. It wasn't some sterile kind of picture-perfect moment. We mustn't, mustn't try and neaten it and clean it up looking for a gentler kind of religion. No, it was a bloody gory mess with a grieving mother looking on. As one commentator puts it, the stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. This is what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. We need to take it in. He actually died in our place. His death was the death we should have suffered. And if the cross has become a gentler place for you, perhaps just sit with Rizpah at Gibeah for a moment. Jesus Christ died like that for me. If you're not a Christian here today, this might sound a bit morbid and horrible, but we all know our world's it's, it's dying need is for justice. Isn't it? It's for justice. And so as we think about that, may you see that Christians don't shy away from justice. God's wrath is good and right, but we also know a God who is merciful who provides atonement, who provides a way of satisfying justice without us all facing the punishment we deserve. And it happened in Jesus. If you want rescue from wrath, you find it in Jesus dying for the sins of his people. Sin atoned for. That's the first thing, the reality of it. But secondly, what's deeply amazing is this, that when there is atonement, there's healing. That's what happened to the land, healing. The famine ends. Rain fell upon them from the heavens. Imagine the joy as they, as they stepped out into those first drops of rain, perhaps I know, opening their mouths up to the sky to let those large drops quench their parched tongues again and again. Imagine crops beginning to grow, empty bellies being filled, incomes restored. It's life. Where sin had brought wrath and destruction, atonement brings healing. And again, of course, it points to what Jesus' death achieves for us. Life, restoration, healing. As our, as our guilt and its consequences are wiped away as God's wrath is averted, so we find life in him. We find life in the, the giver of life. We find it in our hearts and our minds today, even, even as we struggle in a world filled with wrong. But whatever might sit in your past, do you know what is dealt with? You know, we don't have to, you don't have to punish yourselves anymore. You don't have to pay for it to bring healing. Christ has done it. And then we will experience this, this healing fully when God makes all things new, when Christ returns. It's the healing, the healing of God's atonement. He's the one who keeps this kingdom secure. He's savoring us from his own righteous judgment. Sin looks like it's going to shatter everything. Wrath seems inevitable, but God is mending it. The church isn't a dead end. It isn't a hopeless cause. Being one of God's people, it's not like standing on the Titanic knowing it's going to sink. Why? Because of God's healing atonement. Through his son. In Jesus Christ, that's where we find atonement forever. So that's the first problem in restoration, but there's one other problem. Uh, chapter 21 faces this with, 
And it's this, it's the danger, it's the danger of God's enemies. This is from verse 15. And we don't just have pressures and problems coming from inside the kingdom, we also have them outside too. And it's verses 15 to 22, we're shown the danger of God's enemies. And here we, we enter the strange world of the Philistine heavyweights. Here we're given four terrifying enemies. We've got Ishbi Benob, Saf, Goliath. Now, this is probably, given the fact that we know David killed Goliath, and also in one Chronicles, it's, it's written slightly different, that it's probably that the text should say the brother of Goliath. So that's three, Ishbi Benob, Saf, the brother of Goliath, and then finally we've got this unnamed man who's so big he's got six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And what's terrifying about these men is that they're enormous. They're called giants, it seems. It's like, you know, me coming up to a, a heavyweight boxing champion. I don't know, like Alexander Usyk, you know, six foot three, he's 15 stone, he's built like a tank. It's terrifying, isn't it? Now, the word in the text for giant, it's literally rafa. They're descendants of this man called Rapha. Now, this goes back hundreds of years, and there seems to be other links with, with other giants of the Old Testament, like the descendants of Anak. And there just seems to be this lineage of really massive guys living in Philistine that, that trace back to this guy called Rapha. And these enemies weren't to be trifled with. They carried their huge weapons, and they're massive. Sitting on David's borders was the constant threat of these giants. There really was danger, danger from these uh, enemies. Now, though we don't face descendants of Rapha, which would have been frightening, the Bible is clear that, that there always has, and until Christ returns, there always will be enemies. Enemies of God's people are much worse than the Raphaim. This passage just shows us the reality that these enemies will keep being there four times. Did you notice it's repeated? There was war again. There was war again. There was war again. Part of living as a Christian is living at war. And these experiences of God's people in the Old Testament, they're there to teach us. Now, not how to be a, a soldier on a physical battlefield, but instead to be a soldier on a spiritual battlefield. As the Apostle Paul again puts it, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood like Saf, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These, these giants teach us that we do have outside enemies that loom large. They're not weak, nor are they powerless. And we're not to be naive about this. You know, you can't read about Jesus' life alone without realizing there are evil spiritual forces set against him. As we'll see, we don't need to be worried about it, but we definitely do need to be aware. Because if we're naive, we will become lazy in our walk with the Lord. Scripture shows us that the devil is at work, he's always deceiving. Always increasing fear and distrust. He's always encouraging, quarreling and hate. And if we're unaware, we'll just think we can waltz along in life and faith. But it will be to our peril. You know, we'll think, you know, who, who cares about being strengthened by the 
gospel, you know, by getting to church, spending time in prayer, Bible study? Who, who cares about actually looking after one another and other members of the church and encouraging them with the gospel? It's all going to be fine. But God's enemies exist, as, as Peter puts it, the, the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are in a fight, and we forget it at our peril. It's the danger of God's enemies. But once again, God's got it. Yes, the danger of God's enemies, but there's also the surprise of God's victory. The surprise of God's victory. Here in this passage, the focus is on David and his mighty men, and the, the writer really wants us to know who did what. First of all, we have David, but then we have Abishai, we have Sibekai, we have Elhanan, and then Jonathan. Names forever recorded. Recorded because they were giant slayers. Men who somehow struck down these terrifying enemy that stood before them. Each time God raised up a victor uh, for his people, each time he raised up a person to keep his people safe, to keep the kingdom secure. And it would have looked so unlikely, wouldn't it? These are normal-sized men against a great enemy who carried a, a spear heavier uh, than a few of us could lift. And it does remind us of Goliath, doesn't it? Back in David's youth, a boy against a giant. So ridiculous, it's so weak, so unlikely. It's an utterly surprising victory. And yet it is victory, it's security, it's safety. People slept safely in their beds because Abishai had killed Ishbi Benop. People could farm their crops because Sibekai had slain Saf. And in these human victories, there's clearly another power at work, isn't it? Although it's not mentioned explicitly, the victories, they're so surprising. And, and 2 Samuel has always pointed us to this. It must be God who brings the victory. And once again, these small local victories point us, don't they, to the great dragon slayer. The one who has, who will defeat God's enemies so utterly convincingly that there will, there, there will never be another one to, to walk the face of the earth. But the thing is, Jesus didn't do it, first of all, by slaying another with a sword. He did it as he lay slain. He didn't do it with power and might. He did it in weakness and death. It's even more surprising than these men against giants. As Paul says in Colossians, Jesus' death disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame and triumphing over them. And his death, as, as Jesus Christ died for us, it's, it's as if he reached out and took every weapon the enemy had. He took their, their giant sword and he crushed it in his bleeding hands. He took their spear and, and snapped it under his nail-torn feet. He sapped the strength from their arms as his blood poured out onto the soil that dark Friday afternoon. And God's enemies were the ones left weak and broken. As sin was defeated, as death was destroyed, so God's enemies had nothing left. Nothing to hold against God's people. Nothing to fight them with. Nothing to drag them down with. It's the surprise of God's victory, isn't it? It's all in Jesus Christ. We fight, yes, but we fight against a fallen enemy. This is the extraordinary wisdom of the cross, isn't it? How God could rescue us by his wrath, from his wrath, sorry, from his wrath, by atoning for our sin in the cross, and yet also defeat his enemies in the same weak moment. Isn't that wonderful? It's the surprise of God's victory. 
And this means what God is doing in this world, it cannot be shaken. It cannot be rocked. He is healing his world. He is restoring a people worthy to be a bride for his son. And so as we step each day on this earth, we can know security. As our sin rocks us again, as we struggle with lust or lying, we know Christ has died for us. We know atonement is secure. We can know God himself. Or as we sense the prowling of the lion, as we sense the devil scheming and accusing again, we know Christ has died for us. Victory is secure. We can stand, stand in the truth of the gospel, waiting for the victor to return. And this helps us. This helps us as we watch the world go by day after day. The the news, it can feel so unsettling at times. New leaders rise and then fall. Ideologies come and go. And yet we know we have a stability that will never fall. We have a stability because Jesus Christ died for us. And knowing God has done it all just frees us to live a quiet life. There's so much pressure in our world, pressure to, to make up perhaps for what we've done wrong, pressure to bring success out of our lives, pressure to make a name for ourselves, but to live a part of God's kingdom just allows us, I don't know, tonight to, to go home have some dinner and sleep soundly. It means we can wake up tomorrow and do our jobs, go to work, school, or, and, and enjoy the gifts he's given us. Why? Because Jesus is our victor. Jesus is the king who brings us to God and heals us for eternity. It's in him we receive forgiveness. In him we receive security. He's done it all. Isn't it wonderful? In the face of the wrath we deserve, In the face of the enemies that prowl, we're secure. Secure in the healing of God's atonement. Secure in the surprise of God's victory. And it's all in Christ's name. Amen.